0: and put it up online uh, with the program that we use on Sunday morning. So 1 Corinthians 15. Now, last time that we were together talking in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, we were talking about how uh, the Corinthians had begun a discussion or were in the midst of a discussion about whether or not people rose from the dead. Which seems like a weird discussion for Christians to have. And that's, that's really where Paul goes with it. Like, how can you say people don't rise from the dead? Remember, you're a Christian, you follow Christ, and the whole point of the story is... He rose from the dead, so and he kind of connects that uh, as he goes back through the whole thing. So last time we were together, we looked at a lot of this stuff. Um, so let me just start at verse 12, uh, and we're going to go down uh, through, actually through verse 28, which is the, the whole thought process here. Uh, we left off at verse 18 last time, so we'll pick up at verse 19, but let's go back to verse 12 and read what that says. So here's what it says. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say... That there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says everything has been put under him, it's clear this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all and in all. So, 1 Corinthians 15, we're kind of talking about the resurrection here, and you have this long argument that Paul is making to the Corinthians who have outsmarted themselves. Let's just say it that way. They've outsmarted themselves. They they have talked themselves into wondering if we will rise again, if we will come back to life someday. Um, And that seems maybe obvious to us, but as we talked about it, we said there was a, a school of thought in Corinth and in Greek philosophy where it made some sense they were trying to figure out how to you know, apply what they thought or what people talked about, the really smart people in this world talked about, to Christianity and trying to blend it together and it, what it got them was a place where it made no sense where Christianity kind of lost all that meant anything of Christianity um, and so Paul went through and he says if you, as you assume there's no resurrection of the dead then it means some things It means Christ hasn't been raised. It means, uh, you know, you are lost because part of the reason that I have been forgiven and I have been set free and my debt has been paid and I've been made alive again is because Jesus died and rose again. And if Jesus just died, then that means what? If he didn't rise again, if he just died, what's that mean? We're not
1: born again. No resurrection.
0: There's no resurrection. There. But what else does it mean?
1: He's human.
0: He's just another guy, right? The, the, the symbol of Christ's resurrection was his deity. And Jesus connected that over and over again as you go through the Gospels to, I will rise again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself and I will take it back, right? Destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. The, the prophecies he made were prophecies of authority and prophecies that were connected to, I am God in human form. And so if Jesus just died like anybody else and that was it, then he's not God. Then his death paid for no one. Then he died just like you and I would die. And all that he said was, at best, crazy. At worst, a lie. A deception. One of the greatest deceptions of all time. So his resurrection is the foundational stone of, For everything that we believe about what life is about, about the promise of eternity, about God's uh, interaction, relationship with us, all of it is based on this one fact, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so if there isn't any resurrection from the dead, we are still lost. We haven't been redeemed. We, If we believe, and, and I think this is something that is hard sometimes to get from what Paul says here, but he kind of presumes we all still believe we have a sin problem that we are separated from God by our sin. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then Christ wasn't the Messiah, then we put our faith in the wrong person, and we're still, we are still have that sin problem with God. We are lost. If our hope in Christ is wrong, then our supposed solution for our sin problem is a lie. And we still face judgment for everything we've done. So it's a really big deal what we believe about the resurrection. You literally cannot do anything with the resurrection except accept it. If you do anything else to it, if you try to explain it away, if Jesus swooned on the cross and wasn't really dead, and all that, if you do anything else with it, it takes away every bit of the hope that we have. Because if Jesus didn't, let's just say, Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't really die. He was just kind of like passed out. And then they put him in the grave, and three days later in this, Cold, dark grave. Somehow he revived and got up and rolled the stone away and got out. Now what?
1: He's going to die again.
0: Now he's going to actually die someday. So he's not alive today. Do you see? In other words, if that's a lie, then the ascension is a lie. Then everything is a lie. So it is the absolute center of what Christianity means. Um, and I, I don't know if you've seen or heard this. Uh, Andy stanley has been making a big deal about this. Um, the resurrection is the, the the core of the gospel in the first century, um, and some people are like, "Well, he's anti-Bible or whatever." Listen, it, this this is an argument about uh, evangelism, and it's an argument about if you look in the book of Acts, what did Paul share with people who didn't have a religious background on the Day of Pentecost? Paul shared with or Peter shared with Jews Old Testament prophecies that they would be familiar with, but when Paul went to Cornelius and when Paul went to Athens and went. He didn't go into the Old Testament. He he talked to them about there was this man. And he died. And he rose again. And because he rose again, we believe we will rise again. See? So and that's kind of what Andy Stanley's is saying is sometimes when our young people, as they grow, uh, we like the Bible is the word of God, the Bible is true in everything, and that's absolutely entirely correct. And he actually has said, That's what I believe. But if I force like, you have to accept the entire Bible, every bit of it for, you know, for you in order to, for you to be saved, in order for you to accept Christ. Um, I'm trying to bring to the front things that aren't at the front. Right? Like, it, I know people who have come to Christ without having a first clue about the walls of Jericho falling or, you know, what they think about how the world was created. They've just always assumed it was evolved. They just, but I don't have to go start at Genesis 1-1 with them and, whoa, 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 you can't get saved yet. I know you believe Jesus died for your sins, and but whoa, whoa, time out. Let's go back and let's make sure you have the, the order of the Old Testament kings right and make sure that you understand who built the temple. And We don't have to do all that. We, have, we can trust God with that. And that's kind of the point is, where, where do I want to bring someone to for them to accept Christ? I want to bring them to the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to bring them to that miracle because it encapsulates the deity of Christ, the sacrificial atonement, the hope that we have and even in the resurrection is the promise of his return because he's alive. He's not dead. He's, he's alive at the right hand of the Father ready at the, the command of the Father to return and come and get us. So the, the fundamentals of the faith are all they all revolve around the resurrection. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's why that's a big deal. I
2: have a question about that. When yeah. Paul came out of the Pharisaic tradition and if he did so then I thought the, and I just trying to think back that the Pharisees didn't believe in a heaven; they believed True. the Messiah coming to set up his kingdom on earth. True. So basically, Paul's also preaching to that Pharisee. Well said. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, not in this, but it yes. certainly, yes. as it trickles its way back towards Israel and, and Christians in Israel, it has application there. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, actually. Uh, it's the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Did
2: he, come out of the the he came
0: out of the Pharisees, yeah. yeah. So he would have
2: believed.
0: Yeah, yeah, he would have believed. He would have but he would have he would have believed in it in a different form. He would have believed in resurrection for faithful Jews only, in the, as the Pharisees. Obviously, Pharisees meaning we are the people who are the keepers of the rules. Right? So we know how you keep it. And if you keep them, then you have the promise of resurrection from the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. All right, so that's all kind of what we were talking about last time. Now we pick it up here, and Paul says this, and I just want to get your, you to think along with me here, because in, in verse nineteen he says, "If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied." Uh, King James that I learned growing up, most miserable. We are miserable people, if in this life only we have hope in Christ. What what is he saying there? What's he What's he trying to get across? What's he trying to express? The point? What's like, the point? What's the point of
1: like, like what's the point of following Christ and all this? Like we, we, we or I follow Christ because I'm looking eternity. Right. So what would be the point of following Christ? He's just another. Like I might as well follow somebody else. Right. If I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Right. So why do I have to follow Jesus? I've,
0: I've been deceived. Right. I've been I've been lost.
1: Or, or another way of saying that is. I've staked absolutely everything yes. on this one condition. And if it's not true, then I have nothing. Yeah, I've lost everything. Yeah. Even
0: You've, life itself. It's not like the signers of the declaration. To this, we pledge our lives, our honor, and the, everything we are. Is, if this wins, we're champions. If this loses, we were foolish. But we believe in this. And so we pledged all we have to this. And Paul says, Yeah, I've put in all, all my eggs in this basket. This is the truth. And I'm going to live for this. I'm going to direct my life towards this. If this is a lie, I'm an idiot. If it's a fairy tale, if it's a fable, it's just words. It's just it's useless. It's running around in circles and getting nowhere. For sure. Any other thoughts? Why are we miserable? Maybe not us. Well,
1: well, well, plus they face a lot of persecution. Who does the early church but, and now, but
0: yeah, back then, it's a, a different realm of persecution than we could probably even imagine. I mean, if you think about choice to follow Christ, is a choice that I might be literally the next person that's you know in the Colosseum, um, and that or, or put to death on a whim by an emperor who. Wanted to prove and wipe out, or religious zealots like like Saul of Tarsus, who wants to come around and wipe you out because you're against what they believe is God given inspiration. So you're a blasphemer to say that Christ is the Son of God. How could? And by the way, we already put your leader to death, right? So when Paul says, you know, we are of all men most miserable, what happens in my head? And it's very American, 21st century church thing is, you know, the the saying where. If if we die and I was wrong, what have I lost? But if you die and you're wrong, what have you lost? You know, that thing. So, yeah, well, I'm just a good person. If, if I'm wrong, I'm just a good person or whatever. But Paul's not talking to that culture. He's talking to a culture where deciding to follow Christ is very much a deliberate take up your cross and follow me to death. You know, you could be put to death for this. Um, and so the of all men most miserable, you're throwing your life away. If this is not true, you're throwing your life away for a lie. Miserable, right? Empty, uh, heart aching. And so wasting our life on a lie, terrible shame. False hope, a false value system, a false idea about who God is, about how he has reached out to man or his intentions towards mankind. Um, and so that whole thing, he's saying, yeah, we would be really, really in bad shape. So the other side of it to me is this. when you, This is kind of the conundrum that the, the Corinthians were in. They said they believed that Jesus rose from the dead But then they said that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead In other words, they accepted a truth that was somewhere far off But they didn't accept the practical ramifications of that truth Okay, So think along with me about this Outside of just resurrection What happens in our life When we give mental assent to a truth But then we act like it isn't true What kind of stuff do we do? What kind of things do we give up? What kind of misery do we live in? When we say, yes, that's true, except not right now. We disconnect truth from my practical experience. Give me some examples of where people do that, where people would say, especially Christians, you and I, we would say, yes, I believe that's true, but then we fail to bring it all the way to bear on the circumstances of my life that I'm facing right here, right now.
2: It's a very conflicted life. Yeah. If it's one hour a week on Sunday and that's it, there's a lot of pain there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes it hard to go on Sunday because it feels a little bit fake. You know? I've talked to people before who were in the middle of, like, trying to share their faith with someone they really care about and who's really lost and really needs Jesus, but they're in their own crisis of faith and they re- it's really a big struggle to share it, because I'm having a hard time believing it myself right now. You know, So there is a, a conflicted thing that goes on with that. What else? One that I've been struggling with quite a lot this year is um, you know,
1: I say I trust in God hmm. for everything and then I turn around and worry about the smallest of things yeah. in my life. Mm-hmm pay a great price for, you know, how worry tears me up and yeah. makes me think of all kinds of contingency plans I have to make, and they're all useless. Yeah. I can't control
0: any of it. Yeah. I mean, that's it's a very simple one say, God is my Father, He's trustworthy, He's a provider, but I do, if I don't act like that in my soul, if I don't act like that deliberately in my mind, what am I surrendering a lot, right? I mean, I'm of the quality of life. So talk about being miserable. I know God's got it, except I'm pretending he doesn't every single day. I'm carrying a weight that I say God, you know, when, when Peter says, cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. Yeah, everybody should do that. I'm not going to.
2: <laughs>
0: but everybody should do that. It, there's this, this disconnect. Um, a while ago, we did a study uh, on one of the workshops on a book called The Christian Atheist, and that was the idea behind it. We we say we believe in God, and in big picture we do, but when it comes down to the real issues of life, I act like there is no God in my attitudes, in my outlook on life, in my choices, in my verbiage, in, in the way I talk. I act like there is no God. And so it becomes increasingly difficult for me to share my faith with the lost world when I'm not living like it's true. And talk about miserable, you know then we wonder where where does our influence go in this world, and why does the church feel weak and, and uninfluential and unable to bring healing and life and peace and hope to people because we keep talking about truths, but we live like that 's just talk instead of like that 's true and so that's to me that 's the challenge a lot uh, in, in this is I might not struggle with whether or not i 'll be ri- raised again because i don't have that particular cultural argument going on around me, but there's a lot of cultural arguments around me that are going on that I buy into, where I think, yeah, ultimately God's word is true, but practically speaking, I'm going to live like it isn't. Any other thoughts before we move on? I do,
1: actually. I recently had a conversation with someone who was kind of making fun of people who will go and buy Food and supplies, and stick them in their basement just in yeah. case something happens. And
2: and I said, well, if if that's the case, where we're not supposed to do something like that,
1: where does it end? Do we do we not prepare for retirement? Do, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's a whole big thing about worrying. Do, what? How how much are you concerned about tomorrow? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a great point because this. We can easily go to the side of none of it matters. We just, we just trust the Lord. Isn't it? But some of trusting the Lord is responding to his promptings, responding to the information he's been given us. Not because that ultimately will be the path we take. You know, I think, always think about Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain. God asked Abraham to take Isaac up the mountain in, and to interact with this calling to sacrifice his son. Ultimately, God didn't want him to sacrifice his son. But all along the way, that was what Abraham had to accept as a calling from God. I'm going to go this way, and then got out a different path, right? So it doesn't eliminate the need for planning and thoughtfulness and all that, but we live in the middle of this pull either way to an extreme where I have to prepare for everything. You know, i got to be ready for whatever comes. The money system's going to... I had somebody a couple years ago tell me, the money system's going to collapse, so I took all my money out of the bank and I put it all into gold, right? And then a year later, they're whining at me how much gold has dropped in value and how much money they lost in that. And I'm thinking, you, you thought you were smarter than everybody, you thought you were ahead of it because you let fear drive you. And So what the difference there is, is when fear drives us, we make terrible choices. We make terrible choices in relationship, in finances,
1: in, in
0: decisions about the direction of my life. Fear does not give me any good information for long range choices. Fear gives me great information in danger, in the immediate moment, right? Like run, there's, a, there's somebody come and get you. Run, great information there, uh, but it's not so much information as just response to action. But when I sit there and I live in the what about and what if and all that, it doesn't really help me to be responsive to fear. And I'm not supposed to be responsive to fear. I'm not supposed to be led by fear, am I? I'm supposed
1: to
0: be led by faith that's if you led by the Lord That's if you have my eyes on him so in that way planning for the future simplistically people are like well you should trust the Lord but what they mean when they say that a lot of times is don't do any planning but that's not the way the Bible presents our following God is no don't do any planning it's do the planning God's asked you to do but trust God that the outwork of that plan may be very different than what you were thinking it was going to be has that ever happened to you you know I thought it would be like this, and it turned out to be like that. I went to college to be an engineer. I'm not an engineer. You know, it's like, that, that was the plan God had for me for that, but it wasn't the end of it. That wasn't the way the plan was going to work out. I went to work for four or five years as an engineer and did things like that, but I also at the same time took a job as a youth pastor and started doing that. So God has a way of directing these things. And truth is, when, when I was getting ready to graduate and I had asked Dana to marry me. She's from Oregon. My plan was to move to Oregon. I put out resumes out there. I probably put out 25 resumes out there. Uh, and I had phenomenal grades, it, all A's. I had a great uh, you know, graduate test score or whatever. So it wasn't like, you know, oh, this guy's kind of iffy. It was really, really good resume that I'm sending out as an entry-level position. I got zero job offers mm-hmm. in Oregon. I put out one resume in New Jersey and I got a job in New Jersey because my plan was to go to the West Coast because that's where her family is and that's where I want her to have her connections. That's what I want to do. That's my plan, right? And so I kind of stacked the deck. I was just, I have one place that I have to apply to because whatever, I have to apply there. But the rest of all, I'm going to go out here. God directs me a different way than what I had planned. So I could go. You know, or Dana, why God? Why did you do this to us? Or we can go. Well, clearly, this is. We can rest in God's providence and plan, and that I think that's the the difference. A lot of times in, do I plan or don't I plan? You plan to the level that makes some sense, but when I when I plan to the to the realm where fear has a grip on my heart, where I am running through scenarios more and more extreme, in the hope. That I'll think of everything I need to think of, so I'll be set for no matter what happens. Now you're not in faith anymore, are you? So, and that's I think that's where our faith has to live out in in some of those like, when's enough enough? But when's it not enough? When when do I when am I being faithful and when am I being foolish? And some of that stuff. I'm a, I was a retired guy. I was a
1: professional planner. When some of your sermons touched on this very subject. Yes. And and one of the things you pointed out. One of my takeaways from it was that if your plan is, if you're so set and so focused on that plan, you've actually made your plans your God. Yes. And and therefore you're in rebellion against God. And that's the ultimate of sin. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So not only is it, if, it's, if my plan is based on worry, that's a total wrong direction. Yeah. But, but putting too much stock in my plan. Is, is turning to the wrong guy, yeah. and, and that was one of the things of thinking back as a professional planner. We made 20-year plans and we made them every four, four years. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep coming back. Keep rechecking. Make sure it's okay. I think that what you just said is a great example of what, we, what we're talking about here. That I believe that my my well-being and my security for the future rests in God's hands. I believe that functionally, how does it look for somebody to live day to day, decision by decision, to believe that? And when you say, your plan becomes your God, do you know when something becomes your God? Not because you say, well, I don't believe in God anymore, I I worship this as a God. It's when you try to find what only God can give from something that isn't God. So only God can give security, only God can give peace, only God can give power. And when I look to something else to give me that, I've made that into an idol. Which is, I mean, ultimately that's what idolatry is, right? When when you read through the historical idolatries of nations, they would go to the fertility god if they wanted a great harvest or if they wanted uh, to have a lot of children, they would go to a fertility god to give them something that only the true god can give, but they would act like this stump of wood or whatever can give me that, right? We do that today all the time. My job is going to make me feel like I matter. If I'm popular, if I have enough friends, they're going to make me feel like I'm somebody, right? If it, like if I have a, a good enough living or a good enough house or a good enough whatever, and compared to the people around me or compared to whoever matters or if I have the approval of this person, we turn these things into our idols, and we start to look for them to give us something in our soul that only God can give us. It's devastating, but we never stopped acknowledging the big truth. Yes, God is God. We've just stopped living that truth, and that's what the Corinthians did here. They they didn't really stop acknowledging that Jesus had risen from the dead. The reason Paul brings Christ's resurrection in is because it necessitates the resurrection of believers, and that's that's where the rest of this goes. That's why he brings it in. But what he's saying is, you acknowledge Christ's resurrection, but you deny its implications. You practically speaking, you act like it doesn't have anything. It's isolated off there by itself in space. You know, as a thing I believe, I go, yeah, that's true, but it doesn't mean anything to me. And I would caution us as believers, let's find ways for us to take what we know is true and bring it to bear on our lives every day. Make sense? All right, so then Paul says, uh, verse 20, but Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so Christ has indeed raised from the dead. And uh, as we started chapter 15, we saw a lot of the ways that Paul gave that evidence. What did Paul do with the Corinthians to kind of like remind them that they knew, yes, this is a fact. Christ is raised from the dead. Do you remember? Do you remember what he did at the beginning of chapter 15? Give them a
1: reminder.
0: Yeah, how so? Like, what would he remind them about? Do you remember, Bruce? That how
1: Christ
0: died and risen. Died, buried, rose again, according to the scriptures. So just like the scriptures had predicted... Christ fulfilled them, and so the scriptures told the truth before the truth happened, and then the truth happened. How else did they know he had risen from the dead? What
3: are witnesses?
0: Lots of witnesses. First to the apostles and the twelve, and Peter, and then you know five hundred, and then Paul says, and then to me, right? So there's all these people, and Paul says a lot of those people are still alive today. You could go talk to them, and they would give you their personal story, right? So. There was a witness to these things. So Christ is a risen from the dead. That's a fact. How do you know that it's a fact that Christ rose from the dead? You can't go talk to people. Then, you know, those witnesses have dead a couple thousand years here. Okay. How do we know that that's true? The witness account. What's that? The eyewitness account. Okay. Okay. So there are some people who wrote this that were eyewitnesses. They're giving us their testimony. You know, John, the Apostle John, standing at the foot of the cross, running to the grave on Easter morning. He says he rose again. And by the way, we met him on the shore of a beach, you know, a couple days later. And then I saw him going to, like, John gives a testimony. He's an eyewitness. So when we talk about the Bible telling us it, the Bible tells us it from first-person recollections from the Apostle Paul. You know, in the book of Acts, there's a story about him. And then Paul gives testimony to it again and again in the book of Acts. I saw the risen Christ, right? How else do we know?
3: Well, the Spirit, uh, for me, I mean, it was a transformation. Well, well, how I thought and things I did that, you know, I was just touched at, you know, what not to do and what to do. I
1: mean, it was unexplainable. Just literally unexplainable. That's how I knew there was was a big change uh,
3: in my life.
0: That, to me... That may be the most powerful tool we have in sharing our faith, (laughs) is that it's not something that happened long, long ago. It's something that happened in my life. God changed me and is changing me. I know it's real because there's no other explanation for what's happened to me than that Jesus is God, that the Bible is exactly what it says it is, that he died and rose again, that he changed me, transformed me from lost to found. And that personal testimony, like as Tom says, the eyewitnesses back then, yes, but there's we're still eyewitnesses to the effects of it, right? And so we can, when when God says you will be witnesses, he's not talking about you'll be witnesses who have all the Bible memorized that can cross-reference all the verses and tell people all the... You'll be witnesses, first-hand account givers of the resurrection, because the resurrection has an effect on you. A, a, an undeniable unexplainable other than the fact that it's real effect on you and if it hasn't it should right mm-hmm. Try it. It and in there, yes
2: yeah
1: believe.
0: it's a yeah it's a truth that isn't as uh, objectively uh, verifiable but I know because I believe right this as John writes, I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Why? Because you believe in the name of the Son. You, know, you believe, so that brings you a no. Um, when your faith is shaky, when it's hard, when doubts have gotten you, it's hard for you to feel that assurance, that no. Um, sometimes it's because I've decided to take a different direction in my life, and I've tried to hold on to truth over here while acting in a different direction than the truth. That makes it really hard to feel sure, to know. Um, but I know, in large part, personally because I believe. And so other people have the same choice to believe, and if they would believe, they would know too. But there is some of it that's faith. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I love that you say he changed me and is changing me. Yes. So his spirit bears witness to our spirit. Yes. And our life continues to evolve in our faith
0: walk. Yeah, I way? think yeah. to me that is some place where Christianity has gotten pigeonholed in a really bad way as believers. If I present my salvation to people as something that happened a long time ago and now I'm all set, right, then all they're going to hear, even though there's truth to that, all they're going to hear is, so you're better than me, mm-hmm. right? I should make the same choice you did because now I'll be up, then I'll be as good as you. But you and I know that's not the reality. The reality isn't, God is he was finished the day I got saved that there has been a progressive work in my life from that moment that I gave my life to him onward. And and he continues to stretch me and challenge me and pull me in ways that are beyond imagination and uncomfortable. And that's because this isn't a fairy tale. This is true. And I'm still experiencing it today. So saying to somebody like, I need him every day. I know you probably do too. He saves me every time I give my life to him. He rescues me from myself you know he will you too there's a testimony of like let me put my arm on us do this together as opposed to like hey come come get up as good as me uh, i think sometimes that's a really powerful way for us to be able to share our faith is to share that we're still experiencing the effects of trusting in Christ and every time i trust him there's transformation good good so there's a lot of ways we can know today i would say one of the biggest like objective facts is the existence of the church today there is no, and I, and I don't want to get into huge, huge discussion about this, but I'll just say this to you. Historically, there is no precedent and there is no other reasonable explanation for the fact that literally billions of people profess Jesus Christ on this earth today, thousands of years after that man lived, than the fact that he died and rose again. There's, there, the cult, the, the, the culture into which it was, was that event happened was, was spun and the, the fallout that was there, the pressure that was against it, if this was not literally the truth, there's no way that thousands of years later, one-third of the world's population says, we trust him. Not that everybody who says that is is actually a believer, but one-third of the world's population today, 2.1 billion people, claim to be Christians. How do you explain that thousands of years later? You know, there's no... Uh, Caesarites you know Uh, I follow Caesar like he was a great general or Alexander the Great or there's great great historical figures they don't have disciples they don't have followers they don't have people who claim that they're alive and living and speaking to them today Jesus does and the only reasonable explanation in the course of history is that what the Bible says happened happened and people were willing to give their lives for it and people continue to experience it today by the millions Right? This is not a small delusion of a few people who are weak minded. This is worldwide. The only explanation is Jesus rose from the dead. That's that's the transforming event that brings this about. Alright, so what he says then is this He has indeed risen from the dead. We know it, you know it. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is an interesting term, first fruits. Does anybody know what first fruits means? When we talk about first fruits, does that ring a bell with anybody?
2: Like, like you're,
0: tithing, you give like your first percent okay. or so, yeah. like
2: the first thing you
0: get. Yeah, and that comes from the kind of biblical Old Testament concept here, first fruits. So when I'm going to give to God, I don't give the last little bit. I give whatever God has put on my heart to give to him, I give it to him first. It's, you know, there's something to that, right? First fruits in the Old Testament um, is actually a very uh, agricultural reference. First fruit. <laughs> the first... Like part of your harvest that bears fruit, not when you, the first time you cut your grass, because you're not going to you know make anything out of that. But the first time that you get grain or you get fruit or whatever from your harvest, you do something with that. So uh, I kind of went back to Leviticus 23, where it's prescribed what it is. It's an offering of the first fruits. Uh, in Exodus, or excuse me, Leviticus 23, verse 9, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. And then verse 14, You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. So I'm an, I'm a farmer. I'm growing some plants. I've seeded my field and here comes some corn. Obviously, Jews didn't have corn, but here comes some corn. I've got a couple of years of corn. The first ones that grow, the first ones that are ready to harvest, I am called in under that idea, first fruits, to take that corn to the temple and offer it before the Lord, to give it to the Lord, to, to hand it to the priests so that they can be waved before the Lord as an offering. So I'm wondering why. W- why would God ask people to do that? What?
1: Well, it's an act of faith. How so? That you're saying, oh, Lord, I thank you that you've given me this harvest. You're the one who's made it grow. You're the one who's given me the the right rain, the right sun, so that it would grow. And I'm giving you this in faith that I'll have a crop afterwards yes. that we can eat and enjoy and save for
0: seed. And- yes. So the first one that I get, I how much do I have before that? None. None. So the first one I get, and even what you're saying with money, the first money that I get, like I need this now. Because I need to use it. I don't have any reserves, this is the first right? So the idea there of taking the first fruit into the temple was this act of faith that said God I recognize you gave me this I didn't get this for myself, this isn't luck this isn't chance, this isn't a representation of my skill as a farmer you gave this to me you made it rain, you gave soil you gave the blessing of life it's you who gave this to me so therefore I will give you honor by bringing the very first of that to you and it and it's kind of, I don't know, there's a little bit of humor to it, but it's kind of like, just wave it before the Lord. But I can eat that. No, just wave it before the Lord. <laughs> Surrender it. Give it up. Give, a, give away what you could use as a testament that, God, you're the one who, I would have nothing unless you gave it to me. And so this is to your glory. And And it says, and don't eat anything from that harvest until you do that. In other words, you can't just take the first fruits and set them on your shelf and just harvest and go on with life. That first fruit goes to the temple first, and then it represents what's coming after. It represents the harvest. It represents your faith that God has already provided, even though you haven't gotten it yet. God's already provided for the rest of my needs, so thank you before it shows up. Boy, if we lived with faith like that, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you before it shows up because they've already provided. I'll give away what you've already given me because I know you're giving me more because that's what you do, right? That's kind of that's the idea of the first fruits is to give glory to God and to express faith that that's acting like God's trustworthy, isn't it? Because I don't have the rest of it yet, but I believe I'll have the rest of it. So you have this first fruit, God,
2: right? That makes me also think that the first fruits in the, in the economy in which we live is the most valuable. Mm. You know, it costs more to get the first fruits than it does as they come in 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 multitude.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: very true. It's a, not the leftover. You know, I think there's some application of that with the sacrifices and the the animals who are brought as well. That it, it's not the you know the maimed and the diseased and stuff. Oh, I don't need that. Let's give that to God. It's no, there's an act of faith in it. Mm.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because you know I, I guess some
1: people have a hard time with it because. We know God doesn't need it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need that first
3: fruit. He doesn't need our money. It's it's all an act of faith. Yeah. It's all uh, the trust that, you know, do it and, not, and I'll see that you're faithful and trustful. Yep. Yep. It's pretty cool. But yeah. it's pretty, you know, if you think about it, well, you know, he do not need it. Why can't I give him my, the
1: end, <laughs> the end right. stuff? He's not going to eat it. He ain't going to eat that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm hungry.
0: We can rationalize it, but what it does is we rationalize a way our call to faith our call to act like god is exactly who he said he is his character is exactly what the bible presents and god's faithfulness is reliable enough that i'm in no danger to give away what he gave me because if he gave it to me and he called me to give it away there's more that's why when we do we don't pass offering plates on sunday we i i think this i want you to be before the lord in the challenge that god puts on your faith Maybe you've never given anything before. I want that person to go before the Lord and say, should I be giving something God? What's God going to say? Yeah, you should. All right, what should I give? Uh, That step of faith is huge to me. I don't want to be a person prescribing it for them. I want that relationship with God for them to be alive and living and breathing so that they're talking with God about that. And maybe it's 5% or 10% or it's a dollar amount or whatever. Maybe it's 100%. Whatever it is... If you learn how to hear from the Spirit of God and you're willing by faith, you know God's going to stretch you with that stuff. You're willing by faith to trust that when God taps on your shoulder and says, I want you to do this and you do it, it's because God will be faithful. And sometimes he wants you to let go of whatever, money being one thing, but let go of whatever, control, uh, pride, reputation, whatever, so that God can bring what he wants into your life. But he doesn't bring that thing into your life so that you can let go, because that would be pretty easy. Yeah. He, le- he asks you to let go, faith, believing that God has provision, right?
3: Yeah. Well, the problem is that there's some preaching out there that promises you,
1: yeah. uh, uh,
3: if you give
1: the 10% or whatever right. first, that you're
3: going to get 10 times right. that. Right. And that's why you've got to be sure it's the Spirit leading you to, Absolutely. and not some...
0: Preacher. Yeah, it can't be a personality thing, and it can't be a bargain. You're not, you're not,
3: yeah,
0: you know, working God into a corner by yeah. giving Him money so He yeah. gives you back yeah. One. Yeah. You know, the 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 one of the greatest steps of faith is when I when I give sacrificially to something, and God doesn't replenish that money, and calls me to live in sacrifice, mm-hmm. and to be content with that. To say that's okay. Jesus. This is this is what you asked me to do. I believe that I'm in a better position to follow you and be hungry or be without some convenience or whatever, I'm in a better position there than I would be if I had that money and I'd been using it for myself. But that requires the same kind of mindset as like fasting, when I don't have to put aside food, but I put aside food because what I want is my focus and my energy on my spiritual life and not my physical life. So I have to kind of beat my body away from being the primary thing I pay attention to with, no, we're not going to eat. We're going to leave that aside for now so that we can focus on this. And So there's, there's a lot of these ways where God gives us the opportunity to get away from thinking this is just a, a, an exchange. Certainly for the Hebrews, in that, in that way, there was the promise, oftentimes, that if I am faithful with my offerings, mm-hmm. that God will provide for my needs physically and the needs of my family. And there was a sense that that was a testimony to the faithfulness of God over Israel. Um, that sometimes gets really distorted into today because I don't know that America is a place where we are right on the edge of starvation. I know lots of people don't eat in America or whatever, and I don't know what that is. But I also know we throw 40% of our food away. So I think we've got a messed up system more than we have a lack of resources. Do you know what I mean? So it's a little bit different in America today. It's a little bit different in our world today uh, than what we're looking at when we, when we look at that and the faithfulness of God in providing for, for basic human needs. But yeah, I, I would say to you, we're never giving to God money, time, energy, whatever, so that I will get some you know personal advantage. I'm given because I believe what God is doing in this world and what God's cause and purpose for my life is, is the best thing I could ever be involved in, of of more worth than anything else. That's why I do what I do. That's why I don't sit on the sidelines at church. That's why I don't, you know, everybody else will do it. I don't have to do it. That's why I jump in. I find a way to be involved, even though it's not always convenient. Wednesday night I don't really want to get up and go out to church and it's dark outside and it's cold outside you know and Sunday morning I have to go teach a class or I have to be making coffee earlier than anybody else gets here I'm making a sacrifice why am I doing that I only do that if I can keep my eyes on the idea that when I give up something that would be more comfortable or convenient or more desirable for me for the sake of what God's doing in this kingdom in his world I believe that's an advantage I believe that's the best thing I can do with my life. I believe it's almost a waste to not do that. And that's why I give of myself to the kingdom of God. And so that first fruits thing, that has that idea. Now that's not really how Paul uses it here, but it references that. So I wanted to kind of give you that background. But what he's saying here is this. Just like the first fruits came into the temple were a representation that the rest was coming, that the harvest was coming, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection of believers. Okay, so in other words, what Paul says is Christ's resurrection is the promise, is the guarantee, is the the first illustration of what God is going to do, and they are connected almost as one event. In the way that the words go here, they're almost like one event. The first part of it is Christ raising from the dead, and then the rest of it is all the believers raising from the dead. And so the, the, the without uh, Christ's resurrection, there is no resurrection here. But if there were no resurrection here, Christ wouldn't raise either. They're connected. That's kind of the idea when he says first fruits. That yeah, question.
2: um, I you may have covered this last week. I don't know, but is there a specific um, passage or verse in the Bible that says that other saints were risen when he? Was resurrected yes. at that very
0: moment. Yes. Can you tell me where he is? Uh, yes, Matthew. Yeah, we talked about it a couple of years ago. Um, I think on Easter. It is. Is it
2: 23? It is
0: 27. Matthew 27. Um, Verse 51 says, At that moment the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. Then verse 52 says, And the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city, and appeared to many people. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: I was just looking that up, and it was saying about, the commentary was saying, like, With the first fruits, like Jesus was the first fruits, and then at that moment,
0: the other people who rose from the dead. Yeah, and I think there is a connection there of the miracle of life-giving power and all that that's representing that. But I believe those people died again.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? So here's the thing, and this is kind of where this gets theologically. When Jesus died and rose again, he is the first of this new kind of resurrection. What's the difference between Jesus' resurrection and every other resurrection in the Bible? They die again. again. He doesn't. And so when it connects it to our resurrection, it's connected to that idea that all these other miracles, you know, Elijah and Elisha and and all the, the, the times in the Bible where somebody rose from the dead, Jesus raised somebody from the dead, all those people died again. So it was a resurrection that was a display of God's power, but it wasn't of the kind of Jesus. But one day... Those who trust Christ will participate in a resurrection of the genre of Jesus, where when we are raised from the dead, we will not die again. It is a permanent, glorified resurrection. And that is a powerful thing, because that is a promise that is unbelievably large, that you will be raised to eternal life, that you will never face sickness or death, disease, hurt, pain, sorrow again that you'll be raised to eternal life. And that promise is a uniquely Christian promise that comes from the resurrection of Jesus. There is no other, you know, world philosophy of religion where they promise eternal life, resurrection bodily from the dead because of the resurrection of your leader. Um, Even Islam, which talks about paradise, it's a spiritual paradise. It's not a physical paradise. Uh, Even though there is a you know, harem of women and all that stuff. And even though Mormonism has this idea of uh, uh, inhabiting other worlds with uh, the product of a spiritual union, these are spiritual realities, not physical realities. The Bible's talking about a physical reality. You will be raised again in a body to life, an eternal body, just like Jesus was when he rose from the dead. Pretty cool. And so that when he talks about first fruits, that's one of the things he's connecting to. That that idea that Jesus rose again is a unique resurrection. And then it says, all will be resurrected in that day. He's not talking here about, uh, you know, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, everyone who's died. He's talking about believers. And I think that gets pretty clear as you go. There is some, as you read through this passage, there's these words all. And some people take that to mean everybody's going to be saved. All believers. But it's all believers. Okay? And you kind of can pick that up in there. So, verse... Um, You know, verse 21 For since death came through a man The resurrection of the dead comes through a man So that sounds like Just like everybody dies because Adam sinned Everybody lives because Jesus rose again Kind of can sound like that, right? But the next verse For as in Adam all die So in Christ all will be made alive So now we're talking about this In Christ thing As opposed to, you know, everybody It's in Christ And so I want to talk about real quickly What that means uh, before we kind of close up our discussion for tonight. So, death came through a man. How did death come through a man into humanity? Through Adam, right? God says, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. Did Adam die that day?
3: No. In yeah, more, more. Spirit. Spiritually. Died.
0: Yeah. Physically. He didn't physically die that day, but he died. Right? And then... Physically, there was a representation of that down the road. And because we are offspring of Adam, he passed that on to us. So every single person who's born is, and this is a little bit deeper theology, and I don't want to get into the the hairiness of it, but every single person that is born is in Adam. And the idea of being in Adam is that you are spiritually responsible. You were a spiritually participant in Adam's sin, I wasn't even alive. I wasn't even aware. Yeah, I know. And I wasn't either. But spiritually speaking, that's the heritage we have. Somehow, we participated in Adam's sin. Even though I can't really understand that, it's why I suffer what Adam suffered. I suffer spiritual death. We are all in Adam. We are all born in Adam. Now, we have this other thing that we can be, which is in Christ. And it's really, really cool to be in Christ. Because what it means, similar, if you read through Romans 6, it's really, really cool. What it means, similar to being in Adam, that we participated in Adam's fall. When we become in Christ, we are taken out of Adam. We are placed into Christ. And it means we have participated in the life of Christ. It means we have participants in his death and his resurrection. Literally. That I'm dead to sin, and I don't live any longer. That I've been put to death in the flesh, and I've been raised again spiritually. The Bible talks about Christ is seated in the heavenlies, and then it talks about I'm seated in the heavenlies. It talks about I was in him before the foundation of the world, and it talks about Christ existing before the foundation of the world. And so I've been taken out of this line of Adam, out of this offspring of Adam, and I've been born again. I've become an offspring of Almighty God. I've been born as a child of God, and by birth I've been placed into Christ. And by being placed into Christ, I received the life of that family and the the birthright of that family. One of the birthrights is that there is this resurrection coming. And the resurrection from the dead is an eternal resurrection, just like the first fruits Jesus was. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm not trying to confuse you, but I think that's really cool, the way that there's a spiritual transformation there, a spiritual transformation of identity. I am a child of Adam, therefore I... Own the death that comes my way I I own the fallenness Of Adam Versus I am a child of Christ And so I am free from sin And I have the mind of Christ And I have the strength of the Spirit of God alive in me So that the fruit of the Spirit can be produced in me And I can live for the glory of God For the cause of God That I couldn't when I was in Adam Because I was just in Adam But now that I'm in Christ I, I live in a whole different realm In a whole different plane And then the Bible goes So why would I turn around and go back to the life that's in Adam. Why would I look at that as something to be chased after and desired? Why would I live for the things of this world and the things that the people in Adam live for? If I'm in Christ, this is the birthright. You know? And it's where Hebrews says, Don't like Esau, despise this privilege and go back to something that's so much less, you know, sold his birthright for a pot of stew. What? How did you how did you Well he thought he was gonna die? Yeah, right, I'm sure. Right? So that idea there is We have to value what we've been given But we have to see it for what it is We have to see the privilege of being in Christ And so we follow Adam We follow his consequences because of the laws of birth The law of birth is when I'm born I'm born into the family of Adam I'm born as a descendant of Adam I am in Adam But when I am born again, I'm transformed And so I've provided life because Jesus rose again and Therefore I am alive because he is alive And so What Paul does as he goes through this is he talks about how, you know, in one man, death came to all men. In another man, life came to all men. And there's an undercurrent there. If you remember, we talked about dualism. We talked about that idea of spirit being good and and physical being evil. There was also a debate happening about whether Christ literally was a physical man, whether he was a human being or whether he was an apparition, that You know, was a special apparition that people could see. But because he's good and perfect, he had to be spirit of some sort. And so there was this debate going around. And Paul brings it back to just like a man, Adam, sinned and brought death to everyone. A man, Jesus, died and rose again and brought life to everyone. So he very much brings in the humanity of Christ. The doctrine of what we call the hypostatic union, which means he's God and he's man. And the only person who ever lived that that was fully both Jesus Christ. That he he was no, there wasn't a percentage of him man and a percentage of him God. He was fully God and fully man. How can that be? Yeah, I don't know. But that's what the Bible teaches us. Is that he was every bit divine and and God himself in human form. But he was just, he was a man like you and I. He was a man without sin, but he was a man. If you cut him, he bled. If, you know, he was tired, he yawned. I mean, it was a man. He lived like a human being. And and Hebrews makes a big point about that, that he lived like a human being so he could understand what it's like to be. So when we go and talk to him, we, we go, you know, you know how it is, Lord. And he goes, yes, I do. <laughs> You know, we have a high priest that gets it, that understands, that understands what it is to feel sick to your stomach or, you know, to have an ache in your knee. He understands all that stuff because he lived on this earth as a human being. And so he gets it. And so he came to, so he would understand all that stuff. And so he is a man and a man, by through that man who died, literally died and was raised again to life, we will be made alive in Jesus Christ. Pretty cool stuff. All right. So we'll pick it up there next time. We get together, and uh, as we transform through this, uh, trudge through this chapter, um, we get down to some really, really cool stuff about the description at the end of this chapter about what happens when he comes again, and when will this resurrection be. Okay, what can we remember in prayer before we go tonight? Anything, Lisa?